Matthew chapter 20. We can't just jump in right at chapter 20 without looking at what had just taken place because really chapter 20, what Jesus starts in this parable is a response to his dialogue with Peter. Uh, Peter had told Jesus that we've left everything to follow you, Lord. Look at, look at what we've done and what will there be for us? And Jesus says, truly, I, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, this is verse 28 of chapter 19, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left house or brother or sister or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit the earth. And then verse 30 is really key because he says, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Now, chapter 20, verse 1, he says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each one received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who, have you hired, who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have, you have made them equal to us who have been borne the, the burden of work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the other who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. We see Jesus ends this parable with the very same words or similar words that we ended chapter 19 with. And we see that he is making a connection. He is making a connection here for Peter's sake and, of course, for our sake as well. And so when Peter asks, what is there going to be for us? And this frame of mind, and Jesus says, really, is that the frame of mind you should be thinking of? He comes across and he gives them this parable. And the parable is, the kingdom of heaven is like. 
And so once again, we hear those things and we know that's the, the purpose of this parable is to give us a disclosure on what the kingdom of heaven is like. It also reveals things about ourselves, but it's telling us something about the kingdom of heaven, something that's important that we need to understand. You see, Peter's mindset was, look at what we've given up for you. And Jesus's mindset is, look how good God is. And we need to be able to stop and see these things and how God presents them. Now, in light of the dialogue with Peter, what do you think Jesus is trying to tell us in this parable? What is something that he's trying to disclose? Remember, this is in light of what Peter said, and it's about the kingdom of heaven. Any ideas what he's addressing? Salvation? Okay. Okay, our motives. You concur? (laughs) You concur. Now, let's... Let's think about the time that Matthew's writing this, about what is taking place, and what is this gospel, this message about Jesus Christ, the kingdom of heaven, going to do? The kingdom of heaven has been sent to the Jewish people. It has been given to them, but it is also going to go towards the Gentiles. And so for many of the Jewish people, and Paul dealt with this extensively in the book of Romans, especially in in chapter 9 of Romans, he talked about God's mercy. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And oftentimes Romans chapter 9 is taken to mean that, you know, God can... uh, just condemn people if he wants to. And who are you to say, you know, God can condemn people just because he hardened Pharaoh's heart. The potter can do what he wants with the clay. But the whole point of Romans 9 specifically is that God has been more merciful than anyone expected by opening the door to these Gentile people. And who are you to say he can't? And this is very similar saying, who are you to tell God these people shouldn't get the same reward that I get when I have been working in the heat of the day, when I have grown up in this tradition, where I have been a part of the Jewish heritage forever. It is who I am And now somewhere down the line, someone else is going to come along and you're going to reward them the same? Remember, Peter's dialogue with him previously is how can someone who is rich, if they can't enter in the kingdom of heaven, who can? And Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. Well, to the Jewish mind, salvation to the Gentile was not something that they thought of unless they converted and became a proselyte and like them. And so their whole frame of mind was that the kingdom of heaven was for the Jewish people. That was their frame of mind. Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like this. You guys have been in the field all day. You've been here for hours. 
Some other people came along later. Some other people finally come at the very last minute, and God blesses them all the same. Doesn't he have the right to? He is God. Very much the same as Romans chapter 9. Don't I have the right to be merciful with who I want to show mercy? And so what Jesus is portraying to Peter who thought, what are we going to get? Because we're serving you and we've given up everything, Jesus. We're going to be your right-hand guys. We've given it all. And Jesus is saying, you really haven't given anything. You're going to get a hundred times better than what you've given. So you, it's not a loss for you. This is a win for you. And he says, but the first will be last and the last will be first. And he's going to go on and expound this even more so later on. But what he's doing here is presenting this understanding that you and all your efforts and all your traditions do not get anything more than the person who comes in at the last hour and barely works at all. Because it is the landowner's right to be generous and to be merciful and to give what he wants to give. And you can't be upset with God for opening the door and being merciful because he has that right. And it does, as was mentioned kind of reveal our hearts because we do get envious. It is our nature, and it happens especially in churches. It happens especially, you see a comparison that takes place many times with churches. If a church is doing well, well, the only reason they're doing good is because they water down the gospel. Or the only time they're doing good is because, well, they don't preach the true word of God. And there is this comparison that has always seems to be taking place within the church. And it, it's sad. It's sad. And it's easy to fall into this place where we think we've got the right way. Everyone else has the wrong way. We're doing things. We're, we were hired early in the day. And when someone else is doing good, we can get a little envious. Why is their church doing good? Oh, yeah, someone donated a building to them. What? Why didn't they donate it to us? We're better than them. And this frame of mind can, can creep in and we can start to envy one another. And when God blesses another group of people, we can get jealous. But really, what Jesus is dealing with here is how the gospel is going to spread. And it's going to go to those people who they thought didn't deserve it. The Gentile people. And doesn't God have a right to be generous? And it's so contrary, I think, to our frame of mind where we think that God so many times is waiting to judge. And it almost appears that God is just going out looking for opportunities to be generous. Hey, do you want to come work in the vineyard? Yeah. I mean, the last group, he didn't even tell them how much he would, they would pay him. He just said, go work. 
He told the original ones, you're going to get paid this much. And they were like, yes, a denarius. That's great. It's a day's wage. We're jazz. We got work. And all day they were working and they were fine. But then these Johnny-come-latelys come. And they only work an hour and they get paid the same as us. That's not fair. Was, Wait a second. Isn't it my money? Didn't I agree? Are you upset because I am generous? And I think God is a little bit more generous than we would like sometimes. God is a little more merciful than we would like, especially if it's something or someone that we don't like or someone who has wronged us. It's very similar to the story of the prodigal son. Remember, the prodigal son isn't just about a son returning. It's about his brother being jealous because this son had left and had squandered his whole life and had done all this righteous living, not right, righteous, riotous living. And he just squandered everything. And the father brings him in and he has a party, kills the fatted calf, put rings on him. And he goes, wait a second, I've been here, I've been faithful. You've never given this party for me. And the father said, as long as you've been here, it's all belonged to you. And that would be said to the Jewish people. All the scriptures, all the promises, they've always been yours. But now this son who was dead and has come back alive, who is lost and has been found, I'm rejoicing. Why are you upset because I'm rejoicing for my son who's come back? Again, it's showing pride in the heart. It's showing jealousy. It's showing envy. And Jesus is addressing this because Peter's wanting to establish himself. He's wanting to, hey, Lord, I've, I've given everything for you, Peter. Let me tell you what's going to be, okay? You know, you're going to get a hundred times. Don't worry, you've got a place. But even those who come in at the last minute, who come in late, those who you don't think deserve it, God's going to be generous. And he has a right to be generous because that's who he is. And it's important for us to see this kind of understanding about who God is and how God deals with people. Because again, he can be more generous than we can be. So once again, Peter's mindset, look at all I've done and given up for you. Jesus' mindset, look how generous God is. One is based on how much I do. One is based on what God does. One is based on works. The other mindset is Jesus, God's being grace, merciful, generous. And, and so we see that comparison. Does it make sense in what he's saying here and what he's trying to establish? In verse 17, he goes on, and Jesus predicts his death. This is the third time that he does it. And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem on the way. He took the 12 aside and said to them, now it's important, he took them aside we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. And so here Jesus is again for the third time foretelling his death, 
This is the first time that he actually mentions crucifixion specifically, and also that he would be executed by the Gentiles and not the Jews. So he's disclosing a little bit more information that he has the last time. And remember, Matthew is telling these stories in an order that was going to help us to understand the message that Jesus is bringing forth. And so once again, we see that, you know, Peter has this, you know, hey, I've given up everything. Jesus tells him, listen, God is generous. God is merciful. He's going to bring some in at the last minute. He tells them, I'm going to go. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. And now he continues on in verse 20. And it says, then the mother of Zebedee's sons, this is James and John, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. Picture this. The mom comes and asks a favor of Jesus, but she gets on her knees. Okay. These are mama's boys to the the max. What is it you want? He asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right hand... To my right or my left is not mine to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Mark's gospel tells us that this was James and John, and it says that James and John also came. And so they might all three came together. It could be James and John were like pushing the mom ahead because it kind of tells us it was their thought, but it looks like they got their mom involved. Or maybe their mom says, so what are you going to do with this Jesus? Are you going to serve him or what's going to be your place? Or you have job security. You know, what are you doing following this guy? It's my best Jewish imitation. And, and, and so they, they go along and they start talking to Jesus, and she gets on her knees and says, okay, when this kingdom that you keep talking about gets established, grant that one of my sons be on your right. Let let him be a right-hand man. Let him be second in charge. Let him be that guy, the go-to. Let him have a, a position of power, of prominence. And it's interesting that this takes place right after Jesus talks about his death. Remember the last time that Jesus spoke about his death? When he talked about his death the last time, it was in chapter 18. And immediately after that, they started quarreling with each other about who's going to be the greatest. So he says, hey, I'm going to die. They go, I wonder who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. He says, I'm going to die. Hey, 
Let's go and see if we can get a position. I don't know what was going through their mind. You know, when he would say, I'm going to die, and then they come up and ask, hey, can I be your right-hand man? I'm just not sure what was taking place in their minds. And we know that the disciples were upset. They were indignant with them. Jesus spoke to them. So he's talking to the mother and the two sons at this time. And we wonder just, it's obvious they didn't understand. It's clear. You, you want to be on the right hand of the guy who's going to be turned over to the Gentiles and crucified. Really? You know, something's not sinking here. They're just not clicking and they're not quite understanding what's going on, which makes you wonder what is happening. Now, what do you think Jesus means when he says, can you drink the cup I am going to drink? Remember the Last Supper, he took the cup. This is the cup, the new covenant, my blood. And so there's a correlation there between this cup, the covenant, his life giving that cup to drink from. And are you going to drink of that? And they say, yes, we can. And you've got to wonder. It's like so many times Jesus said, do you guys understand? And they would shake their heads. "Uh Uh-huh. But you know, it's like right afterwards, it was like, it doesn't seem like you understood. You just said you did, but you really didn't, which isn't uncommon. We, We still do that a lot. I know our kids will do that. I know I've done it plenty of times. I say yes, and I am like, what did they say? You know, you don't, but you're embarrassed to ask, too prideful or whatever. But um, yeah, I think exactly. He, he was talking when he says the cup is, it's the mental, the spiritual and physical hardship that Jesus had to endure. And they were going to drink from that cup in a matter of speaking. James would be martyred by Herod of Agrippa. John was banished to the island of Patmos. He didn't get, he wasn't martyred. They tried to kill him, but they ended up banishing him. And so he lived a a life of solitude in many ways, the last years of his life. And so they did have to partake of that suffering. They did have to deal with the, the same things that Jesus had to deal with to a very real extent. And so Jesus said, yeah, you're, you're going to drink of these things, but you guys, once again, you're, you're thinking, like you said, it's a re- earthly kingdom. You think this is a position of power and prestige. And it's not. It's not. And, and then he goes on to give an understanding. And he says, you, verse 25, know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them, but not with you. This, the kingdom of heaven is different. It's not about position. It's not about recognition. It's not about status. And that's why I have such problems with titles like pastor. I know the position, I know it's biblical, but the title is something that we have made more than I believe we see in Scripture. And we have positions of prominence where you have to call them pastor. You have to give them reverence. Oh, pastor, here, take the, the front seat. Here, here. And they cater to them, and the, some pastors are all gung-ho for that. And, and it's amazing how 
that takes place. And you see these words, and Jesus says, that's what the Gentiles do. And the idea of the Gentiles is those who don't have God, those who are unaware of God, that's how they're living, not you. You're supposed to be different. You're supposed to think different. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. The servant is the same word we get deacon from. You want to be great? You should be a servant. So a deacon is a servant. But when you hear, oh, he's a deacon of the church. Oh, oh, does he have a hat? You know, does he have, what, what does that look like? He's a deacon. And we think of it as a position of prominence. A minister. What's a minister? It's someone who serves. Oh, he's a minister. And all of a sudden it's this idea, oh, ooh, ooh. But all it is is supposed to be someone who serves in a position of servitude. We've made it something different, I think. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Wait a second. If you want to be first, you have to be the slave. Yeah, in the kingdom of heaven, it's the reverse. You want to be great in this kingdom, you serve everybody. If you want to be great in this kingdom, it's not about your position. It's about how you can promote and elevate others, how you can exalt them. And both these stories, the parable and this that he's giving, they're, they're interrupted briefly by his mention of the cross, but it is showing the disciples really what it means in this kingdom, what it's about. If you want to be great, then give your power, your position to help others. The first shall be last. The Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Are those positions of power? Are those ideas of status and strong? No, those are Ideas of some people who are in need and broken and hungering and lacking. And God says, yeah, that, that's, those are the ones who are blessed. Congratulations. You want to be great in my kingdom? Then see what you can do to help others. And I will consider you great in my kingdom. Because if you start lording over people, you're just like those who, who don't have God. And he goes on, he says, just as the son of man, here is the prime example. Son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, many doesn't mean just some and not all. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2.6 that he, gave, he came and gave himself a ransom for all. So he's not trying to be Calvinistic here. But what he is saying is, I'm an example. I didn't come to get served. I came to give myself, and the word ransom is telling because you pay something. A ransom is giving a payment. I, I came to, to give a payment. The payment was going to be his own life as the ransom for these people. That's our example. Remember Jesus when he washed the disciples' feet. If I am your Lord to wash your feet, shouldn't you have that same mentality? Do you ever feel like you do more than someone else? <laughs> Especially you moms. Uh, but I mean, even in ministry, we can get this way. 
I do this. In fact, I remember years ago going into the office of one of the pastors and saying, listen, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And I listed all the things I was doing and I said, it's not fair. I don't think I said it in exactly those words, but it was to that extent. I just said, I'm, I'm, I'm overwhelmed here and I'm doing more than everyone else. And I don't think it's right. And I look back and I just think, oh man, could have handled that a whole lot differently. Should have handled that a whole lot differently. But we can get in this place where we think, man, I'm doing more than these people. And then if someone gets recognition, oh, doesn't that eat you up? Come on, admit it. It does. It's like, why do they get recognition? I do more. I was up at 8 o'clock this morning, and I, I was working till 1 o'clock last night, and I did this, and I set up all these chairs, and I did all this other stuff, and, you know, I did more than them, but then, you know, Sam goes up there and goes, I just want to thank Harvey for all the hard work he does, you know, and Harvey doesn't do anything but hand out bulletins, and what's with that? You know, he came in late, and you can get a real attitude, you know, about not being recognized. You should be happy for Harvey. Good job, Harvey. What can I do to make Harvey more exalted? It's a safe name. We have no Harveys here. <laughs> you know, it's... What, what can we do to help promote Harvey? What can I do to, to help him get more recognition? There's one pastor I know, whenever he talks about some of the other people in ministry positions... It's always glowing. You would think by the way he talks about these people that they are the most incredible people in the world. And I know some of them, they're nice people, but they're not. It's like, I didn't get that from them. (laughs) But he really just tries to build them up. And I really appreciate that. I really appreciate how he tries to encourage others because... That's what the kingdom is about, is about lifting up others and not trying to take credit. Give the credit to others and take the responsibility for yourself. Is that contrary to what we do or what? Isn't there an office episode where Michael Scott said, I want all the recognition and none of the responsibility? And that's kind of what we want to do, right? I I want all the recognition. I don't want any responsibility. And Jesus says, give away all the recognition and take all the responsibility. And then you'll be great. Then you'll be someone in the kingdom. Then you're going to have status. And we think, wow, but do I want that kind of status? Well, do you? This kingdom of heaven, this is what it's about. And so... This is what he's doing. This is what he's trying to present to us. Verse 29, he goes on and he has another story here. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed them. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. 
Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them. It literally means Jesus was gripped with compassion. I I love just that phrase. He was gripped with compassion for them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. What a glorious story. What a powerful story. Let me ask you a question. Why did Jesus ask them? Why do you think he asked them, what do you want me to do for you? Why would he ask that? You see, we read this story and we know, well, because they wanted their sight. Why do you think he asked that? Maybe. I'm not so sure that Jesus knew. Jesus didn't always know. The woman who touched him, he said, who touched me? He didn't know who it was. Someone touched me? No, he said, someone touched me. Who touched me? I don't think he said, who touched me? I knew it was you. I mean, I think it was obviously it was her. But, I mean, there are some things that Jesus said that the Father only knows, not even the Son knows. You know, and he only received what the Father revealed to him. So it's not like he was all-knowing. He had revelation from God, and he knew a lot. And, And he was able to discern a lot because the Spirit of God would give him insight, but he was limited as a man. And so I'm not so sure that Jesus knew what he wanted, but I I think it's curious that he asked them, what do you want me to do? Because I think, well, anyone else have an idea? Before I should, okay, he came to serve, so he wanted to help them. Any other thoughts on why he asked them, what do you want me to do for you? Let me ask you, how many people do you think these blind guys went up to and asked to make them be able to see? Do you think they asked that to many other people? What do you think they asked for mostly? And so here these two blind guys are saying, son of David. They're giving him the title as you're the Messiah because that's what the son of David would be in the, the mind frame of these people. So you're calling me the Messiah. What do you want me to do for you? I wonder if he was seeing if they really thought he was the Messiah or if they just said, Son of David, give us ten bucks so we can go get some gas for our car. (laughs) Yeah, I hope they're not driving. They're blind. That's a good one. It could be that they were just, you know, most of the time they were probably asking for money, asking for some kind of charity. And I wonder if Jesus is saying, what do you want me to do for you? And if, I don't know, maybe they're going to ask for some money. But when they said, we want our sight, that is something you only ask the Messiah. You don't go and ask the average Joe, hey, help me. What do you want me to do? Help me to see. I'm like, what do you, how, uh? yeah, yeah, hold on to my coattails and follow me. But you see, this is showing incredible faith. They're saying, we believe in you. And so when it, he was gripped with compassion, I believe this answer moved him to show compassion towards them because they had faith. You can make us see. We believe in you. 
And Jesus was gripped by that. And he had compassion on them, touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and they followed him. Now it's interesting. This is the same thing that the woman in chapter 15 said, son of David. She wanted healing for her child. How profound is it that he healed their eyes as he was moving to Jerusalem to be able to open the eyes of all men? I mean, there's so many just amazing things about the idea of Jesus opening someone's eyes and the significance and the spiritual implications. He he touched and he healed, but he was going to bring holistic salvation to, to mankind. You know, he opened their eyes physically, but he would also give sight to our understanding and going to the cross. And what is amazing is immediately they received their sight and they followed him. I think that's great. Could be. I mean, there's times where, you know, the disciples had great faith and there's times where they didn't. But he was definitely moved by their faith. You know, and there's a few times in scripture where Jesus sees someone with great faith and he just, you know, when someone recognizes him and trusts him and basically is asking, begging, pleading to him for help, Jesus has this compassion. You believe I can do this? Man, I'm, I'm going to do this for you. And so could be. I mean, it's, it's interesting, too, that the crowd was trying to hush them. I think that's interesting. Shut up, you blind guys. Knock it off. I mean, how cold. It's just like the disciples shooing the kids away. Get out of here, kids. Leave Jesus alone. You know, it's, it's like, wait a second. It just goes so contrary to our thing, you know, thinking of who Jesus is. These blind guys are crying out to Jesus. Hey, you guys, knock it off. Quit bothering him. You're annoying us. Stop it. Can't you see he's busy? He's talking to us, deciding who's going to be the greatest here. Don't need you blind guys yelling at him, King, you know, son of David. And Jesus immediately just, you know, caters to them. You know, he stops and he calls them. What do you want from me? We just want to see. And he's gripped with compassion. And he touches their eyes, they see, and they start following him. And I... Just this has to be turning the disciples' minds inside out. Every time they they go and rebuke the kids and they tell the blind guys to shut up, Jesus comes and does something amazing. Now these guys who they were telling them to be quiet are walking with them. And they're blind and now they're right there with them. Hey, how's it going? Hey. How many fingers I got up? You know, oh, yeah, you can see all right now. You know, I'm sorry about that whole shut up thing, you know. I didn't know he was going to make you see. I just, I didn't know. And here, I mean, just traveling with these guys for however long they were there with them had to be just a trip. They had to be thinking, wow, he just healed those guys. And we just were telling him to be quiet. And he told us the kingdom is about serving And I just asked if I could sit on his right hand. Well, actually, my mom asked for me. What's going on? What's going on here? 
He, he's not doing things the way I thought they would be done. And once again, we see the kingdom of heaven is breaking through, but it's not in the way that they thought. It's showing up through Jesus and the things that he did, reaching out to those who were downcast, those who were the lowly, giving to those, catering to those, healing these people who were beggars, talking about extending the kingdom to those who don't deserve it. The kingdom of heaven is like this. And he's trying to clue them in on what God is doing because it's revolutionizing just what they thought. Any thoughts on this chapter? Yeah? No, it is. And it's very true. We, we tend to push away the things that are different and things that make us uncomfortable. We don't like to be around those things. And it's something we like to control and make things comfortable for us. And so now church has become an extension of what we want instead of what God wants many times. Definitely. I mean, that's what made the Pharisees so upset with Jesus is because he had all these sinners hanging around him. If you knew what kind of woman she was, you wouldn't let her wipe your feet with her hair. She's a sinful woman. You know, and here he is. No, she's worshiping. She's, something's going on. Healing is taking place in her. You know, she's offered this. You haven't done anything. Or, again, our Christianity is right, you know, and theirs is wrong. Um, you know, when you hear someone, oh, yeah, uh, I'm a pastor of, of a church, and you think, oh, you're a pastor, and, and you wonder, oh, this guy, I don't know where this guy's at, and you ask them, oh, how, you know, how, how big is your church? And they go, oh, they're 3,000. You're like, what? You know, how can that be? You're You're kind of an idiot sometimes or whatever, you know, you, you, you just have this understanding of like, that's, that's just not right. You shouldn't have that many people. You shouldn't be blessed like that. You know, why is that happening to you? And it's just showing why shouldn't they, you know, who are you to say that they shouldn't? And we can have that mindset where, no, the way I'm doing things is anointed by God and I should be, you know, getting the blessings. I should be doing that. And I think most people think of themselves in that light. You know, oh, what about me? But it's definitely grace, right? I don't deserve it. Hey, I'm getting, you know, what he's given me. It's his to give, like he says. It is all grace. It's something we need to be just thankful for. Anything stand out to you in this chapter? Any other thoughts on any of these issues, these Four little spots, the parable, prediction of his death, the mama's boys, the blind guys. Yeah, I think that perspective is everything. You know, I mean, that's the difference between this Peter and the Peter after Pentecost, you know. I mean, that's the difference that takes place when they see, you know, well, what's going to happen for me? And then they see what Jesus has done, and then pretty soon it's a matter of, oh, okay, yeah, we're a part of something much bigger than we ever dreamed of, you know. Instead of us being, you know, having some chairs in Jerusalem for a few years, we're changing the world, 
you know, and it's like, oh my gosh, I didn't know it was that big. You know, I didn't know we were going to be a part of something that huge. And so, yeah, you're all of a sudden you say, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, I see. This is more than I thought. My thinking was not right. And I think that's the same thing with us. What would happen if we really lived and believed like this? What would happen if we really believed the first would be last and the last would be first? How would we change the things that we do? How would it affect us and our conduct towards other people? And again, trying to lift them up and not trying to bring people down or exalt ourselves, wanting ourselves to look good, wanting to establish our own place. What if we really lived like this and believed it? I mean, that's how we should. And so, any other thoughts? I just heard some things talking about the mind and the way the mind thinks. You know, there is a part of our brain that is set, and it's kind of, there's the frontal lobe that rationalizes things. When you see things like problem solving, you know, how do I do this? And this is how I'm going to solve this because I got to help. You kind of think ahead. You start reasoning, you figuring things out. But there's another part of our brain that is very reactionary. It's the survival part. It's what happens when you're being chased by a mountain lion. You see, you don't think of reason and you don't start, you just start running for your life. In fact, you tune everything else out. You don't start running, go, oh, look at the bird. You just, there ain't no birds. You know, you don't worry about the rocks on the ground. You know, you don't worry that your feet are sore. You're just booking it because you're trying to get out of here. And, and I think many times we live in this survival kind of mentality where we just, what about me? What about me? What about me? And, and we try and move our lives forward in this kind of, you know, reptilian, you know, Neanderthal kind of a thing. You know, it's just like, ah, oh, you just got to survive, just got to survive. And we don't really bring reason into it. And God has created us to be able to reason those things out and to be able to think about those things. He's also created us to be able to run when there's a mountain lion chasing us and tune the other things out, you know. But sometimes I, I don't think we think about things. We just react. And we do get very self, you know, preservation mode. It's all about me and how can I act and how can I get and what can, you know, what's going to be in it for me. And it's very, you know, narrow-minded. And then Jesus says, what about thinking like this? And it's like, what? You know, I didn't know there was this whole life around me. I just wasn't aware of it. And so I think a lot of times we get narrow vision because of that. Any other comments? Nada? Okay, let's pray. There's lots of good desserts over there. Father, once again, we are challenged by your words, and it forces us to rethink how we live and the way we conduct ourselves. And if we are seeking to be first, if we are wanting to promote ourselves, if we desire recognition and status instead of wanting to help others and give that to others and exalt others and be here for others. Um, 
Father, that is contrary to our way of thinking. It's contrary to our culture. And we find ourselves having to pause and rethink how we conduct ourselves with one another and with you. Lord, we we see the envies and jealousies that can creep into our lives. We see the comparisons that take place when we start comparing ourselves to other people or what they have to what we have. And Father, all these things reveal our selfishness, our blindness, really. And then here you go and heal the blind and give them sight and they follow you. Lord, they believe in you. And Lord, may our eyes be opened as well. May we see you and may we follow you and live this life as you've exampled for us in being servants. May we, may we think, how can I outgive everyone around me? How can I do more for them than they do for me? God, may we try and be a blessing to those that you bring into our paths, those that we can help along the way in their walk with you. Thank you again, God, for your mercy, your grace, for being so generous with us. We are grateful. We do love you and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.